0: Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today, we're on to episode 119. I'm talking about my featured species of the month. That's Iroco, or Milicia excelsa, uh, sometimes known as African teak. This is a wood that's been around for quite some time. It's been imported all over the, the globe for quite some time. But it's really gained a lot of popularity rate lately because of that African teak moniker. I'll get into that, but first, thank you to everybody who continues to support this show. And by support, I don't just mean the monetary stuff. Certainly, that's really appreciative. My Patreon grows every single day, and you guys are awesome. Patreon.com slash Lumber Update. That's how you can do that. But the support that I'm getting from you via emails, the questions that I'm getting, the feedback that I'm getting. It's just really cool to see how people are engaged in the show and how many people are writing in saying that they learned a lot from it or they put the knowledge to use the last time they went to the lumberyard or the last time they went into their wood shop. So definitely keep those emails coming, keep those voicemails coming. I really, really appreciate the support. If you're interested, you can go to LumberUpdate.com. There's a contact form there. You can email me at LumberUpdate at gmail.com to submit your questions. So let's let's set aside a rope for a second and let's get into some cool industry news. Um, welding wood. Well, how do we weld steel? We take two different types of steel or not necessarily two different types, two different pieces of steel oftentimes it's two different types and you heat them to really really high temperatures and you pound them together so the pressure and the heat welds them together to the point where they are one steel Japanese chisels are a good example of this bimetal bandsaw blades are another good example of this well you can weld wood and there are companies now that are that have discovered if you take wood and you rub the two pieces back and forth at a certain frequency and add some pressure. Um, Certainly the, the friction creates heat, but that certain frequency allows the wood to literally weld together and it becomes one single bit of wood. Now I immediately scoffed at this. This was actually sent to me by a couple of people, and one of you actually responded and said, We but we've been constantly told by modern adhesive companies that glue bond is actually stronger than the wood. So would I rather do glue two pieces of wood together or weld them together? And you know, I'm sure that there's some structural testing that shows that this is super, super strong. But the important part to this wood welding is you can join two boards together in like two seconds. And there's no cure time, there's no dry time, none of this. Like the ultimate strength of a wood uh, bond with a glue joint is, you know, certainly you need, you can't have gaps unless you're using a gap-filling glue. And even then, gap-filling glues can be somewhat weak. But there's that, the strength is measured by the cure time. Once it's fully cured and you've got a good joint, you can get a super strong uh, bond. This is just putting two boards together together grinding them past one another to certain frequency and they weld together. Now, what I don't know, and none of the examples that I've seen, or I should say all the examples I've seen has just been face grain to face grain. How does this work when you weld ingrain to face grain? I imagine it still is working because you're welding it together, but just like you would have uh, an ingrain to face grain uh, joint, you're liable to be little bit weaker but then again glue joint tests have also told us that an ingrain ingrain joint can be quite strong to me this is just particularly interesting at an industrial level think of things like timber frame or um, stick frame construction especially with modern uh, lvl's and clts where you can see and see all your parts like a normal timber frame and then weld them together in a factory in seconds that's particularly cool so i will post a link to a company that's actually doing this right now. And uh, I don't know, check it out. See what you think. On the same kind of cutting edge technology, there's a company uh, called Inventwood that actually they were part of the University of Maryland incubator. And I've talked in the past about this company that made see-through wood. They were making like windows out of wood by uh, extracting the lignin from it. Well, that same patented delignification process Is being put to work to create a product called Metalwood, M-E-T-T-L-E, like as in I'm gonna meddle in your affairs, but this is a play on Woods, be our play on Woods, ha, um, a play on words, because Metalwood is actually stronger than steel. The structural properties of this is lighter and stronger than steel. The strength to weight ratio is I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but substantially better than steel. This starts by delignifying the wood. So it pulls out all of the stuff that makes it rigid and stiff. What you're left with are those long straws, those cellulose fibers. Well, they can then compress the wood because once you take out the lignin, the density drops you know, dramatically. And remember my episode about the strength of wood, density is really a direct proportion to strength. Remove the lignin, you've got a low density wood. Compress it to take up all that dead space where the lignin was and your density goes back up. But your cellulose fibers aren't particularly rigid. They're quite bendy. So what they do is once they compress the wood, they can then bend it and form it into any shape they want. And then they cure it and it becomes rigid. Um, Now there's some other magic and industrial, you know, intellectual property and stuff going on in there. But you can essentially form a wood, a a piece of this metal wood into, say, an I-beam, cure it, and now it's lighter and stronger than steel. This has been in the works for quite some time. And normally I'm talking about, you know, strict R&D stuff. But here's a company that has gotten the capital, has now gotten premises in Frederick, Maryland, and they're slated to begin production of metalwood in 2025. So this is something that's moved beyond that R&D phase and actually going to be moving into production of a product within a year, I actually a little more than a year. I think it's April of 2025 is when they're expected to go into production. I'm actually really hoping to uh, get in touch with these guys and get out there to see their product because they're so close to me. So uh, stay tuned uh, for some look at this again in the future. It's very, very cool kind of pulling together a bunch of different techniques to create something that could, I talk about how CLTs and laminated timbers could be the future of this. This could replace all of that and really turn the wood world on its head. So Metalwood by Inventwood. I will certainly post a link to these guys because that's really cool. So anyway, let's move on to our featured species. Iroko. And let me just disclose this. The company that I work for, the Jacobson McElvain company, has taken a major position in Iroko as an alternative to Teak. So certainly I may be slightly biased, but I can also tell you that I've been working with Iroko long before we started stocking this stuff at McElvain. In fact, I'd like to think that I had something to do with them making a move towards Iroko. There's a lot of features in this, um, I'm a very, 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 very small percentage of that. But um, yeah, as I said before, it's nicknamed African teak and it's being marketed these days as an alternative to teak simply because teak ain't what it used to be. And there's too much geopolitical unrest in the market itself. And in many ways, it's, it's kind of a forbidden species. It's not illegal in any shape or form. It's not really endangered in any shape or form. It's just where it comes from. And funding, you know, a regime that we don't want to fund, uh, really, it just means teak is is, yeah, it's not around as much anymore. Iroko, on the other hand, grows all across Africa, you know, Cameroon, Ghana, the DRC, the Republic of Congo, or the regular the regular Congo, the DRC, and the Congo, basically all across tropical Africa and some plantations in South America now too. Um, It is a big tree, like 100 to 130 feet tall. And it's a buttress tree that gets super, super wide at its base. So you can find three to five, six foot diameter trees. And uh, personally, I've seen slabs of this stuff easily in excess of 55 to 60 inches without a problem Uh, in fact we brought a bunch in for a customer we specifically were making wide plank flooring and we brought in the slabs the full live edge through sawn slabs most of those were six feet wide you know then we trimmed the live edge off in order to get 48 and 60 inch wide slabs for skinning for um uh, uh laminate flooring this is very common to see this stuff. The lumber, of course, can be had in all widths and, and thicknesses and things, and generally it tends to be narrower than that when it's bought because there's not a big market for super wide lumber. So it's being sawn, flat-sawn into these wide slabs, and then being ripped into dimensional lumber, and then being shipped, um, you know, exported to wherever it's being exported to. It is a big tree, super long as well. Easy to get 12, 15, even 20 foot lengths in super wide material. And you can get, you know, 10 quarter, 12 quarter, 16 quarter. It's a big tree, like a lot of tropical African trees. Very, very big tree, um, which in contrast to, you know, the alternative it's trying to replace teak not so much the same anymore. It's difficult to get wide teak. It's difficult to get long teak. And a lot of the teak these days, you're pushing it when you get into six inch wide material. And even then it tends to be kind of short and you're not able to develop large quantities of wide and long stuff. Maybe you're getting two long boards out of a trunk and even then you may not have the same clear stuff. Whereas a lot of the African woods, you know, your African mahogany, sepilis, utilies, iroko, padukes, et cetera, they have very few defects as we would know them in North America. Not a lot of knots, very, very little sap. And this is typical for most tropical woods because the trees go relatively quickly. There is no like early and late growth. It's continuous growth. These trees reach for the canopy as fast as they can to get sunlight so they don't branch out below the canopy so you don't get a lot of knots. Um, and you get very, very tall, AKA long boards. Iroco is no different. The Iroko, just culturally speaking, in the the Yoruban culture, um, the Iroko is a god and they believe that the god lives in the tree. In fact, they say if you stare at an Iroko tree long enough, you will go crazy. Um, You have to say a prayer if you cut down the Iroko tree or you will suffer. And this is one of those things as well where many of these native cultures believed, you know, if we cut down the tree, we say a prayer, but then we also pay the due respect to the tree by using every last bit of the tree. None of it goes to waste. Well, let's look at modern use of this. And I don't know, you know, there may be, there may be some uh, some truth to this. You know, you cut down a tree, say a prayer. Well, if you don't cut down that tree, you might be in trouble. And there's actually all kinds of, of evidence of people like, go, think of like um, King Tut's tomb. And there were all these stories about the guys that that went into King Tut's tomb who died mysteriously, you know, within years of the discovery. There's actually all kinds of instances of this in the logging lore around Iroko, where people have, you know, cut down a bunch of trees, um, whether they had permission or not, and then suddenly mysterious accidents happened. But here's the thing, the little bit more practical thing. Iroko is definitely a sensitizer. Now there's a lot of woods out there that will say this is a sensitizer. You know, you you can have an allergic reaction to it. And I think just about anybody can have an allergic reaction to any wood. People, certain people are going to be more sensitive to certain species than another. Others are not going to be bothered by a species that drives another person crazy. The one universal thing that I've seen with Iroko is it seems to drive everybody crazy. My yard manager, when he gets exposed heavily to the stuff like can be out sick for several days on end he gets a rash from it just in contact with his skin his you know sinuses go nuts once he breathes the stuff in me personally i have major sinus issues when i work with the stuff and i always make sure that i'm wearing a respirator i've had the dust on my exposed skin before and it hasn't really caused a problem but i'm also very quick to wash the stuff off Everybody I know working on our mill, when we run the Iroko, they can have various sorts of reactions. Some are mild, some are more severe, but just about everybody has it. So maybe there's something to this. Like, you know, if you've got this board of Iroko, say a, play, a prayer to the Iroko, your God, and uh, maybe you'll be okay. Uh, I just find it interesting how there's all these stories, and yet today it's one of those woods that's just known to cause a lot of respiratory and even skin uh, allergic reaction problems um, appearance wise this is why it's known as african teak it's got that kind of yellowy honey brown color but not always it can be that teak look-alike, but then it can also be quite dark kind of caramel brown and certainly you'll see a lighter yellow when you've got a lower density wood or if you have a more widely spaced growth ring again that doesn't necessarily mean lower density Um, you will see that yellow color but i've also seen really tightly packed growth rings and still that yellow honey color and i've seen densely packed growth rings that are dark caramel brown and vice versa, widely spaced growth rings that are caramel brown. And a lot of that I think comes down to just the wide geographic distribution and the variety of soil chemistries and water, you know, um, um, the amount of water that the tree gets. So it's one of those things where if you're trying to buy it as a teak alternative and you're looking for that like yacht teak look, Buyer beware, you know, you may have to buy a larger volume or you may have to specifically tell your your supplier, look, I want that honey brown color, I need you to pick for color, in which case you're going to pay probably substantially more for that. But to me, I've found that even the dark brown stuff, as it oxidizes, it does still take on a little bit more of a yellowish hue. And even the lighter brown stuff will darken pretty substantially, um, you know, as as it oxidizes. So is it a teak alternative? Yes and no, it can be. If you truly want a yellow color, there are probably other woods out there. You might find that Afromosia will weather a little bit more like teak, but both Afromosia, and by the way, Afromosia is a good alternative to Iroko as well, but both Afromosia and Iroko have that kind of typical African interlocked grain, where in a quarter sawn form, you can get a little bit more of that ribbon striping. You won't see the ribbon striping as much in Iro- or in teak but the one thing i will say about iroko is that a particularly oily wood and i find that it works extraordinarily well teak is actually harder than iroko. iroco is about 11 to 1200 janka hardness and to me it works harder than teak which can be 12 to 1400 um, that is largely due to the waxy and kind of oily nature of teak but Iroko has some of that oily and somewhat ra- waxy nature as well. To me what makes it harder to work is that interlocked grain, and it can be much more prone to tearing, but unlike some of the sapalis and the African mahoganies, I find that a sharp blade we'll fix it in an instant. Whereas you might still have to fiddle with Sapele a little bit and you definitely will have more trouble with something like Aphromosia when it comes to tearing out and sharp blade isn't always the answer. I've been able to fix any of the tear out problems I've had with Iroko just by sharpening my blade and sometimes skewing my hand plane. Running a piece of Iroko through like a spiral cutter head planer, zero tear out. But I can't say the same with Aphromosia. You know, and you may have to lighten your cut and kind of do some other things to to eliminate some of the tearing that you get. So yes, as a teak alternative, it's possible. But to me, Iroko is, I don't know, like calling it a teak alternative does disservice to Iroko itself. That interlocked grain, firstly, you get some of that ribbon striping, but you also get this kind of quilted pattern that's very common. It's got that kind of Uh, chatoyancy to it. When you look at it under different lights, it can be somewhat three dimensional, but it, instead of it just being like, like superior where you've got, you know, very, very um, kind of parallel line ribbon striping, the ribbon striping can almost manifest in like a diamond pattern. And that's why I kind of compare it to quilting. It's quite beautiful. In other words, and under different lights and at different angles, it's very beautiful put a, a nice penetrating finish on it and you get a lot of depth and luster that comes from this. And you can work it to a high luster, similar to something like ebony, where you know even without any finish on it, polished to a high grit, you're gonna get a lot of luster to it. It's a really, really beautiful wood to work with. Of course, it's a tropical wood, so it's a fantastic exterior wood. Build outdoor furniture with it, build decks with it, use it in boats, it's fantastic stuff in that respect. From a grain structure, it is a diffuse porous wood, but it's got very large pores, but they're spaced apart a lot. Very large pores, solitary in nature with kind of heavy parenchyma around it in kind of a lozenge shape. So it can be actually quite easy to identify because of those big wide open pores with lots of dense wood in between, and these big Lawson-shaped parenchyma around it that really makes the pores even look bigger, like little like footballs on on the end grain. Um, it's got medium to large um, medullary rays and they are spaced somewhat closely for a tropical wood like this. So on a face grain appearance, on a flat sawn wood, you're gonna have more of an open-grained, open-poured wood. <clears throat> Quarter sawn, again, you're gonna have a, a rougher grain, but again, that kind of somewhat ribbon-striped look. If you wanted to create a high polish on this, you sand it to a quite high grit, Or you could do a little bit of pore filling because of those large pores. But even without pore filling, you'll still get that luster. You're just going to see those kind of pore pockets that punctuate the surface due to that large pore size. Again, as I said before, Janka hardness, uh, 1190 to about 1250 uh, PSI. Uh MOR, MOE, pretty standard, 14,000 to 1.5, 1.6 million on the MOE. Pretty standard for a lot of these tropical woods. Density, again, pretty standard, about 41 to 42 pounds per cubic foot. Density is um uh 0.56. So comparable to most of these African woods, you'll find a lot of parallels with sepelea in this. Movement-wise, I find it to be a more stable wood than some of the African woods with a TR ratio uh, of about 1.5. Tangential, it's 4.8. Radial, 3.4% movement. But This wood, even though it is quite oily and somewhat waxy, you'll find no problems with gluing it. It's not one of those ones you need to wipe it down with acetone or something like that. Uh, You can do bent lambs with it. I say that because we actually just did a project with it. I personally am doing a project right now where I'm using it as for kind of a heavy mortise and tenon base. I use 16 quarter blocks to make these big kind of chunky legs and five quarter material for rails to connect. Um, you know mortise and tenons to these legs. Then I'm also using it for a real thin edge banding on a plywood case. So I've been able to resaw this stuff down to about a quarter inch, planed it down to three 16th, and and I've been. Uh, gluing it up and doing kind of bird's mouth joinery on the front of a case and it's really really beautiful stuff to hand plane i've had zero problems with kind of intricate bird's mouth joinery on the front of this case even in really thin stuff you know like thin strips can have a tendency to split when you try to chisel it this stuff no problem whatsoever it holds together really really nicely Um, cutting mortise and tenons on it and again all this work I'm doing entirely by hand but I've also um, I resought it by hand but I've also resawn this the stuff using power tools and big big slabs using a wood miser on this and it cuts extraordinarily well um, it kind of self-lubricates as you're cutting as well due to that oily nature excuse my cell phone there rookie move not putting my cell phone on vibrate apologize for that It's now on vibrate. And of course, now the dog is barking in the background. Wouldn't be a podcast without a dog barking around here. So cost-wise, this is all over the place. Um, $8 a board foot retail up to about $15 a board foot. I've seen it all over the place. And I think in many instances, the market itself, while it's not new, I mean, Iroko has been around for a while, but it's gained popularity a lot in the last maybe four to five years. So the market's kind of up and down, people are bringing in a bunch of different quantities. And I think the lack of consistency in the size of the volumes of the shipment, moreover, like people aren't necessarily consistently buying a truckload of this stuff and then you know distributing it. You got somebody who buys a truckload and they don't buy anything for a while, or maybe they come together in a cooperative effort and four or five people buy a truckload together. There's not, um, one or two or even 10 buyers buying in large quantities to kind of stabilize the market so i know um, the company i work for does buy it in truckload quantities quite large quantities because we've taken a heavy position in this and we're able to get much 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 better pricing but a lot of our contemporaries are maybe buying a quarter of a truckload or a quarter of a container you know and and Filling in with other things and not consistently buying in large quantities because the demand is not super, super high for the material yet. I think as the demand goes up, more people will be buying in larger quantities, getting in a lower cost and allowing for a better kind of retail or even wholesale price which I think is what explains that wide range from eight to $15 a board foot. And the minute I say that, the minute somebody's gonna write in and say, I got it for $6 a board foot, and I could certainly see that. And then there are other people saying, I can't get it for less than $20 a board foot. It's very typical, I think, of an emerging species, an emerging market. Until a consistent supply chain, until a consistent supply and demand is established, you're gonna find a little bit more opportunistic pricing Going on. Um, You know, the overhead is still the same. Getting a container of material across the ocean still costs the same. Trucking across the country costs the same. And those costs continue to go up. So that kind of explains the wide range of that cost. But compared to something like Afromojo, which is a Ascites, you know, Appendix 2 species, you're going to find Iroko is a cheaper alternative. You're going to find that it's more expensive than the more commodity materials coming out of the same place, coming out of the same tropical Africa like Udili and Supili, which can be had for, you know, $6 a board foot in some instances, sometimes even lower. Iroko is not there yet, and I think it will probably stabilize and begin to get cheaper in the next two to three years in that respect. To me though, um, whether you're a hobbyist or whether you're a contractor looking for kind of a different looking alternative species, is one to check out. And lately I've been selling it for siding. I've been selling it for like ceilings, both interior and exterior. And because it's a cool looking wood, and works well interior and exterior. It's really in vogue for these kind of in to out transitions. Um, I just sold it to a guy who did um, the TNG ceiling above an entryway, above a front door, and the whole facade around the front door was all glass. And he ran the Iroko through the glass into the foyer. Um, and it's a really, really cool look. This kind of in to out both ceilings as well as decking, even siding into interior wall paneling is very, very much in vogue. And Oroka is a really cool species for that. Um, it's got that lighter color to it that it won't make, you know, an interior look really, really heavy with like some of the darker redwoods. But at the same time, I'm selling to guys making furniture. I myself have a, an Adirondack chair in my backyard that I made out of Oroco about 12 years ago. Um, fantastic looking wood. I've let it go gray, um, but for about six years there, I maintained that yellow-brown color just by wiping on a new coat of oil uh, every. in my neck of the woods about every 18 to 24 months. As I said, right now I'm using it to build furniture and I've got a lot of folks who are are using it as a boat building material now, especially on smaller wooden craft. It's taking kind of a big role. Several larger sailboat manufacturers have begun using the material as an alternative to teak. Again, it's not teak and, you know, people aren't trying to pass it off as teak, but as an exterior species, you know, as a maritime species, it definitely is a a valid uh, exterior species in that regard. Very, very cool stuff. I'm a big, big fan of if you can't tell. Um, you know, right now, Heavy use in flooring, uh, any exterior structures like decking, pergolas, you're seeing a lot of that due to the large sizes it can be get for. As I said, certainly boats and exterior furniture, those are kind of the, the common things we're seeing at this point. If you're looking for alternatives to it, certainly teak is an alternative, a hell of a lot more expensive alternative and a lot harder to get these days. Aphromosia is another one. Lati is one that's particularly interesting, it's much blonder. Um, but uh, a, a possible species here. Domestically in North America, you could look at Osage Orange. The yellow come a somewhat brown caramel color that you get in Osage Orange, not the really, really, when you first mill Osage, it's bright bite orange, but as it as it oxidizes, it does look very similar to Iroco. And in many ways, the quarter sawn appearance of it can be quite the same. Garapa or Goncalo, um, excuse me, not uh, not. Goncala alves that's tigerwood. Although tigerwood could be a good alternative. Garapa is another tropical decking species that um, could be an alternative this color-wise. Garapa can be a lot yellower, but again, it will oxidize to kind of a yellow-brown. And that's another one to look at. It's not nearly as interesting grain-wise. Garapa tends to be a little bit more vanilla, more homogenous in its grain structure. But as far as the color palette goes, it's one to look at. And interestingly enough, I've spoken about myrtle Oregon Myrtle specifically. A lot of the Myrtle that you see on the market these days in smaller quantities is sold because it's heavily figured and curly. But if you look at like an unfigured piece of Myrtle, kind of the yellows and kind of the the brownish color that comes out of Myrtle could actually be a nice alternative to Iroko. But you know, I bring up these alternatives for people who just can't find the stuff. I'm hoping that's not going to be the case with Iroco. Most of the lumberyards that I work with day in and day out are now stocking at Iroco. And if they're not, they can certainly get it. So if you haven't worked with the stuff before, give it a shot. And if you are a Patreon supporter, you're going to get a handy dandy factoid Iroco sticker in the mail. Anybody who joins within the month of what is this What is this month? February. Anybody who joins in February is going to get an Iroco sticker. And for those of you out there who are taking these stickers and sticking it on a piece of wood of the same species, God bless you. So go get some Iroco and get ready for your sticker. I'd love to hear from people out there who have worked with this stuff, what your impressions have been. I have not had a negative experience with it, other than the fact that, you know, I, I definitely have to wear a respirator around this stuff, or I end up with a stuffy nose for, for days on end afterwards. So I'd love to hear from you. Anybody who's built stuff with it, send me your pictures. Love that stuff. It's great stuff. So let's move on to some questions. Alex had a question about Rot resistance and tylose. So, uh, well, let me just read it. I have a quick question regarding what exactly makes a wood "quote" rot resistant "end quote." Specifically, as to its relation to tylose and the pores. And what I've gathered from you and my own research, a wood is regarded as rot resistant primarily off of its ability to repel insects using its extractives and resins, as opposed to its resistance to water penetration this brings me to red versus white oak. I'm going to guess that the extractives and resins are going to be very, very similar aside from the tylose in the pores. If you don't know, white oak is full of tylose. Red oak has no tylose in the, in the pores. They also have very similar, I guess I should really say this properly because I've been called on my pronunciation, tylosis is the plural here, or excuse me, tylosis, S-I-S, is the singular. Tyloses, S-E-S, is the plural, and I might even be pronouncing that incorrectly, but you will find tyloses crammed in the pores of white oak, and none in the pores of red oak. So Alex goes on to say, "Do bugs just happen to t- to hate the taste of the tylose on top of it, preventing um, on top of that also preventing water from penetrating the wood?" Have I misunderstood you on the importance of water penetration in relation to rot? So essentially, what causes rot? Well. It is still water. Um, What's causing rot is bugs, bugs eating the wood and fungus and bacteria, microorganisms eating the wood. And that's what's, you know, algaes and bacteria and all that stuff is really the basis of fungus. Um, Spalting is another example of that. Well, you gotta have water to have that. Um, The bugs are drawn to that. In many instances, the bugs are there because they're feeding off the fungus. The emerald ash borer, the you know um, mountain pine beetle is a good example of this. Powder posed beetles will be there feeding off of, well, they're more feeding off some of the extractives and things, which I'll get to that in a second. But most instances, the bugs are not there just to eat the wood. They're there to eat the fungus and the sugars and things that are being broken down by the algae and the fungus and the microorganisms. The fungus is eating the wood. The fungus needs water in order to... to you know, cause that chemical reaction that feeds the fungus that causes the breakdown to make the sweet gooey center um, of the Twinkie that brings the bugs in to eat the stuff up. There are other bugs like termites and in some instances powder post beetles that are actually eating the wood, but what they're doing is they're eating the extractives, the sweet sugars and things like that that are in the wood. This is why most of the bugs, the boring insects, are going after the sapwood and not so much the heartwood, because it's the sapwood that has the yummy stuff. The heartwood is the tree's toilet. Essentially, <laughs> the waste products are passed via the medullary rays into the center of the tree, um, and that part of the tree is now dead. It's it's the, the trash can. Um, It's not to say that the bugs won't eat it, but you know, they're not, they're not happy about it. They're eating it because they don't have another option. So yes, they are eating the wood, but ultimately the water is what's causing the flow up the wood the the xylem and phloem it's being transported you know by moisture sugars and glucose and things like that from the soil but also being transported you know it's essentially waterborne it's like a finish (laughs) you spray it onto the wood and it's the water that evaporates off the water is bringing that stuff up through the wood so you kind of have to have water if you don't have water the tree's dying in which case the tree is probably going to get eaten by bugs anyway it's not going to fight off a bunch of stuff so It is, technically you can have rot without water, it's called dry rot, Um, but water is kind of a big deal here. So if you can prevent the water, you're going to fight off a lot of this. So in the case of white oak, hell yeah, um, the Tylose is stopping up the transport of water. And what Tylose really is, is, is a compartmentalization mechanism. Um, you'll find it just naturally occurring in the pores of a lot of woods. You know, you will actually find some tylos in Iroco. You'll find a lot of it in black locust and a lot in white oak. A lot of crop tropical species will have um, Tyloses in, in their wood and it can be a response to an infection. Um, trees are fantastic at compartmentalizing. If they get a wound, somebody hits it with an axe, or somebody runs into it to it with a tree, or a forest fire causes a burn scar, or a bug bites it, or a bird pecks into it, the tree will kind of wall off that infection and divert its growth around it. And that essentially, that that part of the infection, uh, the bark will grow over it and seal it off, and it's it's. It literally can put walled off, so it's not really. um, It can't spread anymore. It's quarantined. That's a good way to put it. And the tylos. Is like a balloon that blows up out of the cell wall to block off any more um, material flowing up there. So, if the nutrients and things are flowing up the tree and they run through this infected area, then it's possible that that infected area could travel that infection further up the tree. So, the tylos balloons up. And it blocks off that area, and then the essentially the capillaries and the veins and all that stuff, the xylem and phloem, are rooted around that, and it provides nutrients further up the tree without running through that infected area. Tylose is the way of, of cauterizing that, compartmentalizing it off. Um, why it's found just naturally in a bunch of trees, you know, honestly... I need to ask a botanist in that, like why certain trees just form it naturally and they're not responding to an infection. I'm not exactly sure. I could probably do a little bit of digging and figure it out. Uh, and maybe I'll do an amendment to this in the next episode because I, I honestly don't know that answer off the top of my head. Um, but I can tell you that I would suspect in something like white oak, where red oak and white oak are particularly susceptible to a lot of bugs, powder post being the biggest one, due to the yummy nature of um, a lot of the extractives, the same extractives that allow that we use white oak for distilling and for storing wine and things like that. The high amount of tannins um, and things like that, that that create wine and whiskey is also what attracts these bugs. So if by our very nature, we taste good, we naturally grow a lot of Tylose in order to um, prevent a lot of water running into the system. That would be what I would suspect in the case of white oak, possibly in black locust as well. The other thing you may be seeing in these trees that have a lot of instances of tylos is they are, as I said, naturally prone to invasion. So the tylos is not just, it's just growing there naturally, it's blooming up in order to respond to an infection more than likely. But I am completely speaking unfounded at this point. Botanists, feel free to tell me I'm full of it. Um, But the point here in what's causing rot is it is still primarily organisms, whether they're macroorganisms like bugs or microorganisms like bacteria. And those really are drawn to it due to the water that's in there. So if we can stop the water from happening, you're going to have a lot less rot. So it's kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, Alex. The answer is yes, it's both. It's both water and bugs, but where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's water, you're going to find fungus. Where you're going to find fungus, you're going to find bugs. Um, So it's a little bit of everything. And of course, as in most things, wood is a fascinating species. One species is gonna prove you wrong and this species is gonna have no water at all and it's gonna have fungus in it. It's just the way things are with, you know, wood, with trees, There's <laughs> so many variations and that's what makes it fun. So let's stay with that same vein with a question from Jacob. Um, he says, I'm planning to build a pergola over our deck and I've been back and forth as to what wood to use. My first thought was, of course, cedar. But being in the Midwest, I don't have great sources for that. And what I what I do uh, have are very, very expensive. Well, I'll tell you what, Jacob. It doesn't matter where you are right now. Western red cedar is super expensive. And it's only going to get more expensive. Major, major supply and demand issues there. Um, he says, I remember your episode on outdoor woods. And Douglas Fir came to mind as an alternative but I just found a sawmill somewhat near me that does oak timbers at about the same price I can buy untreated Douglas fir at my local big box store. So my question is how weatherproof and specifically bug-proof white oak is. I see mentioned that it's quite insect repellent, but I also know that the powder post beetle is a thing. Just wondered what is true and if oak would be a good option for my build. Short answer, yes. White oak, Quercus alba, is going to be a good option for your build. Douglas fir is an option, but I'll tell you what, that's becoming even more expensive. Um, Although we might see the price in Douglas fir dropping, there's a lot of, it depends on this, a lot of this has to do with softwood terrace coming out of Canada, but the Douglas fir is becoming more and more prevalent. It's actually crowding out some of the Western red cedar uh, Douglas fir, however, has a lot of competition in the structural timber market, so it's all a matter of you know where can you make the quickest buck at a lot of times. And in the in the non-structural, more appearance grade market, Douglas fir is uh, a bit of a disadvantage there, and it's it's the faster buck is in the structural timber market. Also untreated yes it is an exterior species but it's not nearly as exterior durable as something like western red cedar or white oak for that matter the issue with white oak is the dimensions um these days, there's a lot of competition for white oak. So the cost of white oak is going up a lot. The good news is, is the demand for rift sawn white oak is through the roof. Super, super expensive. Quarter is starting to start into fall off. Flat is is much, much lower. So there are a lot of mills out there who are specifically sawing and sorting for rift white oak and they have a bunch of flat left over that they can't really get rid of. They also have a bunch of quarter they can't get rid of. So you might be able to get a deal on it. But the problem is... The lengths are not the same as Western red cedar. You're not going to get 16, 18, 20 foot Western red cedar in white oak. You're going to be able to get eight footers, maybe 10 footers, 12 footers are pushing it. Um, Here's the other thing, sawing it for timbers, six by sixes is not unheard of. In fact, many of the sawmills are sawing it into eight by eight cants. And then they're then taking in a million dimensional lumber. So getting a space, a place that specifically sells timbers, you might have to place a special order in that. It's just a matter of stopping the sawyer from sawing it into individual boards. So the lead time may be a little bit longer there. The other issue is drying. If you're using this for exterior purposes, you're probably okay, but you are going to get checking in this. Um you, you know, used for an exterior pergola, it's okay. Checks are fine. It's not going to weaken it at all. If you can get a heart center board, you'll get even checking in a more dimensionally stable board, but that may not be that important for a pergola. And, you know, getting a free of heart center board might give you less checking, but it won't give you as dimensionally stable a board. In other words, your six by six may end up as a, you know, more of a, parallelogram once it dries, but that really shouldn't be too much of an issue if your joiner is good and your structure is, is strong. To me, though, the bigger the biggest detractor with white oak for this is it's heavy, substantially heavier than a six by six you know, or four by four Western Red Cedar post. But I wouldn't say, I mean, I could probably say that Western Red is gonna be a little bit more exterior durable. White Oak is up there though, from a durability perspective. And it's because of that Tyloses you're gonna find in the pores, which makes it particularly bug resistant. Um, honestly, I think the biggest thing that that White Oak has lost popularity for exterior purposes is that dimensional spec. Um, Over the years, the cost has kind of gone up and gone down. And right now we're in a boom right now for rift and it is more expensive. Um, But like I said, if you can find somebody willing to sell timbers, you might actually be doing them a favor because they have those timbers because they know they're not able to get good rift stock out of it. And they're hoping to be able to sell it as a timber. So certainly as a durable wood, no problem. It's been used for cladding for centuries. Good, good stuff for um, exterior durability. Just a little bit heavy. So, good luck with that, Jacob. Um, And I must admit, this email that he sent in is quite old. So, you may have already built this pergola. If you did, send me a picture. I want to see it. I want to hear how it went and what species did you go with and what was your experience with it. That being said, folks, I think that brings us to the end of another episode. I really thank you for listening. I thank you to those of you sponsoring the show. You're going to get your stickers shipped out here in the next couple of weeks. And uh, if you want to get your fancy Iroko sticker, go to patreon.com slash and sponsor the show. And if you don't want a sticker, you can sponsor the show for a dollar. I sincerely appreciate it. And if you don't want to fork out any money, no big deal. Send me a question. I want to hear from you. Uh, the diversity of questions I get is what makes this show continue to be interesting, not only hopefully for you, the listeners, but for me, the guy sitting behind the mic recording this. So have a great day, everybody. Go buy some lumber. Go buy some Morocco lumber.